Hello, friends. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. Moody Radio's Bible study across America is what we call it. We're taking your questions about the Bible, about God, about the spiritual life. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares, filling in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I happen to be the founding pastor of Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, California. Also the president of something called Compass Bible Institute, where we're doing some things here to train up people uh, to serve in the church. I'm also the Bible teacher that you'll hear on the Focal Point radio program, a half-hour program every single day here on the Moody Network and other outlets and other stations and networks, trying to preach the Bible line by line and verse by verse. But today, it's not my outline, it's your outline that we're going to deal with. If you have a Bible question, we want to know what it is. You can call us right now at 877-548-3675. Jot that down, 877-548-3675. Or you can send us your question on our website, openlineradio.org. No spaces, no dashes, just openlineradio.org. Look for that section that says, Ask Michael a Question. And that form, you can fill it out, and we'll get that in our mailbag. It's not a literal mailbag. It's our electronic mailbag, and we'll get it on the program. That's what we do with what you fill out there on that website. So keep your Bibles open. As uh, Dr. Rydelnik likes to say, get that second cup of coffee going, and we're going to get back to our questions back on the phones. Let's go to June now in Markham, Illinois, listening on WMBI. How can I help? Thank you. Um, Yes, in the Old Testament, when the Jews were under God's reign, uh, he said, like an eye for an eye, he made different rules. And then the New Testament, Jesus says, go the extra mile with your enemy. Um, could you reconcile those two uh, views? Yes, and I, I will and say I will... to you that it's more than just, uh, there's not a big a difference as you might think. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you look at what the Old Testament says about how we are to treat our enemies, uh, for instance, I if I have an enemy and his ox, it wanders into a pit, or I see his animal straying, the Bible says that I'm supposed to return that animal to my enemy. I'm not supposed to bear a grudge against people that have wronged me. The rules are really the same. When you look at what the eye for the eye commandment was in the Old Testament, it was for the elders of the tribes of Israel to hear the cases that would come before them and to adjudicate what the solution should be. In other words, what should the sentencing be, right? Well, if you're going to steal something, there's supposed to be restitution plus a fifth, or if you're going to have some kind of damage done to this person's home, well, then, you know, you've got a certain restitution to make. But if there's physical harm, right, then there needs to be this kind of, of response, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? right? Limb for limb. That picture of payback was something that was entrusted to the leaders to try to adjudicate and to try to sentence and try to carry out some kind of justice for people. On a personal level, right? I wasn't supposed to pay back my neighbor. I wasn't supposed to pay back my enemy that I thought was just uh, being a, a mean person to me by retaliating. The New Testament saying the same thing. The reason Jesus has to call it out on the Sermon on the Mount is that people were using a principle of the courts in their personal relationships. And I would say the same thing. 
right? I've had people steal from me, I, and, and, and they've gone to uh, jail. They've gone to court over this first before they go to jail, and uh, the judge sentenced them to some kind of restitution. Now, I couldn't go and demand that personally, right? I might ask for it, but I can't enforce it. Uh, but the government can, the civil authorities can. So when you read Jesus saying, well, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? But I'm saying love your enemies and pray for them. There was nothing new in that because in the Old Testament, I was supposed to be kind to my enemies as well. If I had a problem that rose to the level of trying to find justice, I go to the civil authorities, in that case, to the elders of the tribes of Israel, and I go and bring my case to them and they decide what the response should be. So I think that's often misunderstood and we think, well, God in the Old Testament was really for people getting their own revenge, and now in the New Testament, he's not. But that's not the case at all. And I hope that that clarification helps, June. Does that give you some insight? Yes, it does. Thank you. One short question, may I ask? Is is hell synonymous with the lake of fire? Yes, ma'am, that is. And that is what the Bible calls this place of ultimate payback for those who have done wrong and rejected Christ. We've all done wrong, but those who embrace Christ get forgiveness in Christ. But if you don't, you go to a place that, as Jesus put it, where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, and it's spelled out in the book of uh, Revelation as the lake of fire. But yes, it's the same thing. Plenty of words describe that reality, but that lake of fire is probably one of the most dramatic descriptions of it. So that's sad, sad reality, and that's why we preach the gospel here on Moody Radio. It's why we do what we do, I hope, as Christians every day representing Christ as his ambassadors. So keep up the good work, June, and uh, that's certainly motivation for us to do the good work that God's called us to do. We don't want to see people in the lake of fire. Let's head out to Akron, Ohio. Natalie, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Hi. I'm hoping that you could uh, clarify a question for me. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, the Bible talks about how the Spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul. So my question is, when a Christian grieves the Holy Spirit through habitual sin, like Saul did, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit departs, does that mean that that Christian is doomed to hell? Because we know that Saul eventually committed suicide. Right. Well, we've got a category that we have to keep clear here, and this has to do with the way the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament for particular roles. And the role here, Saul, you might remember, was the king of Israel. And that king of Israel, the ability for him to serve in that position with the favor of God was indicated in Scripture by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. Now, even as David sins with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, he prays in verse 11, Lord, cast me not from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So the idea of that sense of I'm called to this role. I don't want to be disqualified from this role. I don't want the Spirit of God and his endowment for me to be the king to be removed. That's, I think, what is in view here, uh, and and not a a correspondence to what the New Testament talks about, and that is that if we're Christians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. The idea of God bringing us into his family by giving us the promise of the Holy Spirit 
has to do with a different kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us as children of God, not just for a particular role as a prophet or a priest or a king in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying the Spirit of God didn't have intimate relationships and motivate and, and, and convict people in the Old Testament, but that particular example of the Spirit leaving someone in the office they were in, uh, that, that I believe has a specific role and a specific context there in 1 Samuel and Psalm 51 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. So we've got to stick with what the Bible says regarding the category of Christian as opposed to the category of a prophet or a priest or a king in the Old Testament. And Saul was a mess, and I, I'll, I'll give you that, right? I mean, obviously on Mount Gilboa and how he ends there in chapter 31, not a good scene, but I think we should not try to make corresponding analogies to the Christian life in the sense that we say, well, I could lose the spirit if I don't, if not patient, because he wasn't patient for Samuel to show up, and so he sinned, and he sinned big, and so that means that we may lose our salvation. That's not the picture. And I loved that uh, Trish told us that we're going to have the whole program next week all about this topic. So definitely stay tuned for next week's program as we talk through the assurance of our salvation and the security of being a child of God and the Spirit of God from a new Testament perspective, and I think that's the distinction we need to make. Natalie, does that help a little bit? Uh, Yes, yes, it does. Okay, thank you so much for the call. Let's go out to Corrine in Florida, listening at WRMB. Uh, You're talking to Mike Fabares this morning. How can I help? Hi, Pastor Mike. Really nice to hear you. Um, I have a question. I would like some scriptures, if you can supply, you know, provide me with those um, regarding living together and the difference between living together and being married. Um, because I have, I was dating someone, and he, this person was a Christian, a believer. And um, I have to drop him because he was saying that um, living together is just as being married. It's just a piece of paper for, you know, for legal, to legalize stuff for the government. And so I wanted to know, so what's the difference between fornication and adultery? So... His take was that um, once you live with the person, um, if you separate and, you know, say you cheated on him, then then um, that's considered adultery. Um, I know what the scripture says. I know it and I believe the word and I've been living by the word. But I just need more scriptures just to share with them. Because when I um, share this with other believers, other women as friends, they're telling me the same thing. Oh, no, it's not wrong to live together and not be married. So okay. it's not well, here's confusing a... to me, but... No, Corrine, you, yeah, ahead. and you're right, and keep thinking biblically and keep doing what you're doing and hold your ground, because the culture doesn't like the reality of what the Scripture says. Let me read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So there are so many passages like this that remind us it's about marriage. And marriage, right, it does involve a contract. Now, depending on what culture you're in, it depends on how that contract is done. I've been on the mission field in places where in-laws exchange uh, hogs. I mean, I'm literally, and, and, and they have a ceremony and they exchange livestock for some weird way. And I don't know all the details or remember it all, but I'm thinking, oh, well, this is different. You don't have to go to the 
County Recorder's Office and get a, uh, you know, a contract or a marriage license. But everyone recognizes that this person is publicly committing himself in a covenant relationship. And and I would just turn, Kareen, the argument back on the person, this man that was telling you it's just a piece of paper. I'd say, well, if it's just a piece of paper, let's go get it. It's just a piece of paper. What does it matter to you? Of course, we need to commit ourselves. I can't say to my bank, why don't you give me that money? But I don't want, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to fill out the paperwork. Right there, and if I said, "Well, it's just a piece of paper. I don't want to sign your your uh, your mortgage loan here," uh, they would say, "Well, you're crazy." Right? This is a contract, and we can agree to it. And we can say, let's just pretend, let me move into the house, even though I didn't sign a a loan contract. They'd say, no, you're not going to do that because the loan contract is an important part of the covenant of giving me a loan. And so it is that in our day, whatever the culture recognizes as a public commitment of my life merging with your life in in the commitment of marriage, right, as long. As long as it lines up with what the scripture defines as marriage, which is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship of marriage, right? Well, then that's what we do. And so in our county, you got to go down to the county recorder's office there in Santa Ana. You got to get a a marriage license. It's got to be filled out. Got to have two witnesses there in a solemnized relationship. It can be in the backyard in the pastor's office, or it can be in a big church with a lot of flowers. But you got to go through this and you got to sign it because you're committing yourself to the relationship that we know of as marriage and we know about it because of the scripture. So Corrine, hold your ground on this. Super important. We can't lose sight of what the Bible has to say about these things. So Corrine, I'm proud of you, and I just want to tell you to keep it up, okay? Thank you so much. But one thing, I just don't understand why I have friends who are believers, I mean, for years, and they're agreeing with the same, you know, I, I just don't get it. Yeah, well, I I would say, um, I I would tell your friends, get in the Bible, care about the scriptures, care about what God has said, because if we love the Lord, we're going to love what he's told us to do, even if it's not popular with our culture. And I know it's not popular with our culture. Marriage is not a priority for our culture, right? You want to be with someone romantically? Well, just move in, right? Have a, pretend that you're married, but we cannot let the culture right, to dictate this for us. We have to go back to the Scriptures. So thanks, Kareen, for that opportunity to talk about this very important topic. I'm Pastor Mike Fabars. I'm sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. You're listening to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. Our phone number is 877-548-3675. 877-548-3675. 3675 and we're going to be back right after this break with more questions from you and we'll hear your questions and get some good answers we trust just after this this short break the old testament books of psalms and proverbs teach us biblical life lessons and principles that are too important to skip over that's why we'd like to send you the commentaries on psalms and proverbs taken from the moody bible commentary Learn how the poetry and prophecy in these two books apply to our lives. You can request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or give online at openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik. I'm Mike Fabares sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and our phone number is 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675 to get your question on the air. Let's get back to the calls now. We're going to talk to Julia in Bermuda, of all places. How can I help? 
Hi, I'm really enjoying your program. It's so nice and very informing. My question has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm. So I read in Judges 21 where the tribe of Benjamin almost became extinct because of something they did. But I'm not too clear. I know it involved homosexuality or something disobedient, something, but I'm not too clear. Would you be able, would you be able to explain what did the tribe of Benjamin do that almost made them extinct? And which passage are you specifically referring to, Julia? Uh, I think it's Judges 21. Let me catch up with you here. In Judges chapter 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? Let me get back to this at the mailbag section, and that's coming up not too long from now. And uh, I just want to mm-hmm. cruise through that section because that's a, a lengthier section. And I do uh, remember about the promise there of them uh, being blotted out from Israel and yet not completely. Uh, and we will mm-hmm. deal with that in the mailbag section. I'll give you that promise. So stay tuned, Julia. Sorry, I'm not answering that in real time, but we'll get to that before the show is over. Okay, I promise. All right, let's head to James now in Miami, Florida, listening to WRMB. You're on with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Yes, how you doing, Michael? Thank you for taking my uh, my call and question. Um, I um, so my question is, uh, we know that God is the creator of um, the angels in heaven, and um, I guess I'm trying to understand from a spiritual standpoint if Lucifer is the author of sin, and he first committed sin by going against God in heaven. How, how was he able to do that in heaven in the presence of God? Well, remember, just because you're in the presence of God, as Job chapter 1 reminds us, doesn't mean there can't be sin in his presence. What Habakkuk chapter 1 reminds us of, he can't approve of sin in his presence. In other words, he doesn't approve of what he has in this universe of his that is not in keeping with his holiness. And the exception, of course, is that if we can be allied with Christ, right, then he can see us in his beloved Son, and so we are accepted. But sin, right, is not approved. But acceptance, that's what we mean by acceptance, is approval, not that you can't sin in God's presence. You and I do it, sadly, every day. We sin in the presence of God, and yet we think, well, heaven is like his focalized presence. And in that, how can how can there be someone in his presence that sins? Well, that has to get back to the nature of what God created in this angel that fell, this this angel that would become Satan. Uh, he had a particular capacity to make moral choices, and he made the wrong moral, moral choice, and that is by description, right? That is... Um, that is sin, and he became a sinner, right, in God's presence. He was a covering cherub, he's called, an angel that is a very high-ranking authority, but he decided to morally choose to serve himself and exalt himself instead of serving and exalting his God. So think of it more like uh, the absence of, of, of obedience as opposed to some kind of toxic chemical that's released, and God can't have that in his environment. Well, certainly he can, and he does. His environment is all the heaven and the highest heavens and earth and everything in it. You can't hide from God. He's in the deepest sea. He's in every molecule of the universe, and yet sin is coexisting with him. And by sin, I don't mean a toxic chemical. I mean people that are not obeying him. So that happened initially, 
as Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 talk about, as this sin was found in his heart. And that has nothing to do with the fact that, well, if you're in this particular zone of heaven, well, you can't sin there. It's impossible. It, it is possible. It's proved by the very fact that he did sin. So we sometimes think of it in too much of a, uh, we analogize it too far in thinking about it as a uh, some kind of incompatibility like a computer program or something on a calculator that doesn't compute. Uh, it doesn't make sense in the sense that it is not right, but it doesn't mean it's not possible because, of course, it was possible. It's exactly how it's explained in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Does that help, James? Yes, it, but it also, it also uh, um, still confuses me for the second part of, of the question I was having. It, then what's keeping the current angels in heaven from making the same choice that Lucifer made. Yeah, and I I wrote a book uh, called Ten Mistakes People Make About Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife, one of the world's longest titles for a book. But that book, I have a section in that book, it's a whole chapter on thinking through why is it that we are not going to sin in heaven, right? What's going to keep us from sinning in heaven? And I make the argument that after this particular period of time, You might want to call it the trial of this life, where we're going to be in a situation much like the angels are after their time of trial, their time of testing. And their time of testing came, and it came certainly with the tempter falling from God's uh, presence. And what happened here was those that did not follow that temptation, those that did not choose to follow the rebellion, but chose to be loyal to the Lord, uh, I would say they are established in that position and morally as beings that are not tainted by sin, right? They're not like we are in the sense that they're in sinful bodies, right? They are in a position where the Lord calls them elect angels. They're elect and they're in the sense that they are saved because they're past that time of trial or temptation just like we will be in the eternal state, and it will be impossible for us. And at one point in the chapter, I have to say, even if we have objections and we raise our hands and say, well, how is that even possible, right? Here's the promise that God says that we will not, right? We will serve him forever. We will not fall away. We will not rebel. And because of that, I can rest in that promise, even if I can't understand the logic of this post-time of testing that establishes us in our, in our position before the Lord, because the Lord has granted us that ability, in our case, to trust him and to repent and to fill us with the Spirit and then glorify our bodies one day. That's much like the current situation for angels. So in an innocent state, we would call it, right, it was possible. In a post-innocent state, after the place of us being saved, then it is not possible. And I think that's the traditional argument of 2,000 years of church history, and it certainly is what we're left with in Scripture, because we have a promise that the angels are either elect or evil, and that Christians are either part of his family and will remain that way, or they're not. Uh, so James, I know that's a hard philosophical question. You're asking a good one. It has been asked throughout church history, and I might recommend my book to you, Ten Mistakes, Christians make or people make about heaven, hell, and the afterlife. Let's head on to northern Minnesota, listening on KTIG. Brad, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Thank you, Mike. Uh, I have a question on the end of Mark. It gets to be the last from like eight on, I believe. Yes. Um, can you highlight that going back to the Greek? How far do they go and is it the just the theologians that's added the extra verses there or how does that work well yeah and this is one of just a couple of sections of scripture where we have a large section that made 
the cut, if you want to use it that way, back to the 14th, 15th century, when they were putting together some of the first, what we would call critical editions of the Greek New Testament, trying to piece together all the material that they had available at Cambridge, this is where a lot of it started, and then ended up a couple hundred years later uh, getting into the English translation that became the most popular translation of the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. So this has been ever, forever ensconced in our in our knowledge in Western English-speaking Christianity because it made it into the King James Bible. The question is, was it originally there when Mark wrote this gospel? Or in the passage about the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, were those two sections there? And they certainly have a long history as a text. It's just that they're often put in different places in, in either old manuscripts, or if you go back far enough, they're completely absent in older manuscripts. So we, we come to the conclusion, not trying to be conspiratorial or not trying to, to, to have an axe to grind. That's why all the modern translations footnoted, like this was not the, in the, uh, the oldest or seemingly, as we make sense of it all, in the original uh, ending of Mark. And that, that's, that's always been a problematic thing, and people have liked to put this section here of the close of this, even though it's late found in manuscripts, because it seems like Mark ends real abruptly there in verse number 8. So I, 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 it's a complicated, um, storied kind of, of history of how it came to be, and any good study Bible is going to give you some discussion on this, but basically, like every other distinction we have between ancient manuscripts, we've got to try to suss out and be detectives about what was originally there. Because it's not about taking something out of the Bible. What I'm concerned with is both taking things out of the Bible and putting things into the Bible. So did John write that story about the woman caught in adultery? And if he did, did it end up where it was there in the middle of the book of John? Or is this really the way Mark ended his gospel? And I just want to remind everyone the reason we struggle with it is because the people that were doing their research with a lot limited scholarship, a lot more limited scholarship than we have now, uh, happened to codify this at a time that the Bible then came off the printing presses after Gutenberg, and it was in every King James Bible, but all the rest of the translations are going to say, listen, it doesn't make sense that this was originally a part of the text of the New Testament. I could go on and on about that, Brad, but that's a, a gist of some, some of the whole, the nub of uh, textual criticism, we call it, in trying to figure out what did these men write moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, we're going to get back to more here of Open Line with Dr. Michael Rodelnik. I'm Mike Fabar. We've got the mailbag section coming up. We'll be back right after this. Each week on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Rodelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a Kitchen Table Partner by supporting OpenLine each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called a Bible Study Moment, where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a Kitchen Table Partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares, filling in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik. This is the mailbag segment. That means that Trish McMillan is back. We've got some questions that you have sent us through the website. So, Trish, what do we have now? All right. We are going to start with a question from Rick in Illinois. He listens to WNBI. 
and was reading John 14, 6, which many listeners are probably familiar with. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what happens then, he wants to know, to people who are Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or atheist when they die and they have not believed that Jesus is Messiah? Where do their spirits go? Yeah, and that them. sounds like such a scholastic question. They don't believe this particular doctrinal point. But remember that the Bible makes so clear throughout the Bible, but particularly you could just start reading in Romans chapter 3 about the problem of our sin, right? that we rebel against God, that we like to go our own way. Back to Isaiah 53, we're like wandering sheep. So we'll have all kinds of theological places to go in our lives that can keep us from following the Good Shepherd and following the Lord through the revealed truth that He's given us in the Word. And we can say, well, we'll take this particular polycanon or the Koran or something something else that might take me in another path and I can feel like I'm a good religious person. I just don't agree with their doctrine. But really, this is a moral issue, an issue of the heart. And the Bible says that what we need is to come to grips with that problem and put our trust in the only provision that God has, and that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where we need to go. So this is not just, well, we need to have the right theology. It's not like thinking about your theories on you know, economics. This is about whether or not we're ready to see ourselves as sinners and trust in God's only provision. That's why there's a whole missionary movement and always has been, right? There's no other name, right, under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved, to quote Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And so it is in John 14. He says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one's going to come to the Father except through me. And if you accept what Jesus says, he says, we're sinners in need of salvation. We need to repent and trust him because our good deeds won't do it. So this is a moral question, also a theological question, but not just merely, well, they didn't believe the right doctrine. And I, I hope that that gets it gets us the totality of the problem and not just one part of the problem. So if someone's listening today and saying, wait a minute, I might fit into one of those, maybe not those um, uh, religious categories, but falling into the, I don't know if I think Jesus is the only way, or maybe I do, but does that enough? Like, what would they need to do or know to follow, to make Jesus the way, the truth, and the life in their yeah. life? Jesus told a story about two men going up to the temple to pray, and, and one thought, I'm fine, but I definitely need to go to the temple, and I need to do this religious stuff, and the other guy's like, I can't even lift my eyes up to God. I'm a sinner, right? And he just cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Now, of course, after this, we know Jesus is the reason he can go home justified. Mm -hmm. But I'd say this, you can't just sit here and say, I want a religious system to help me be better so God will accept me. We have to realize that in our sin, we're not acceptable. And that is a really, like getting to the bottom of our own truthfulness about who we are. We're sinners. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his forgiveness. So I would plead with you to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, I am a sinner, but by the grace of God, much like that story of the, of the, the we call it the prodigal son, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but I want to be 
your son, and I want you to forgive me, and I want Jesus and all that he did to be applied to me. And we call that repentance because of our sin and faith because of the provision, and that's what we need to do. And the only place to go is in Christ, because you're not going to get it in Muhammad, Confucius, or you're not going to get it in the intellectual elites of our country. It's only found in Christ, and that's where we need to go. And I would say put your trust in Jesus today. See yourself as the sinner that God says you are, and trust him for full cleansing and then walk in a path to please him, not to earn your place in the family, but because you are in the family and you want to please our Father. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Mike. If you are thinking about maybe doing that or you want to talk with someone about that, you can call 888-NEED-HIM, and they would be happy to talk with you about making that decision or learning more about Jesus and following him on that path. Uh, Joan wrote us from Florida, listens to WHGN, and is looking at Romans 8.11, which says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. She wants to know, what are the bodies that Paul is referencing? Is this our dead bodies after we die, or is it our present living body, which will die? She's even heard teaching that that verse refers to our resurrected bodies. Can you help her understand this verse? Yeah, the whole problem of living the Christian life now is that we are in bodies that don't want to cooperate with our reborn spirit, our made new spirit. We call it the gift of regeneration. God makes us new, sends his spirit into our lives so that my spirit and his spirit both want to do the right thing. The problem is our mortal bodies, they struggle, right? It's a, it's a hard-fought battle. But in Romans 6, he says, we've got to submit ourselves to the Lord, right, and not obey what our mortal bodies are telling us to do. Now, all of this is setting us up for where it's going, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead and glorified, this whole passage crescendos into the fact that we one day will have the redemption of the body. But for now, we groan within ourselves, because we can't do, as Paul said to the Galatians, what we want. And so in this particular passage, he's saying, you can have life from God. You can even tell your bodies, right? I'm not going to be a slave to that sin anymore, because God is going to empower me to break these bonds. And that's how our fallen mortal bodies. They end up getting life. It's a foretaste of the perfection that's coming in the sense that I have perfect desires with the interior core desires of my heart, but I've got this mortal body that still gets to live this righteous life. Think of the most righteous person you know at church. Right? You think, that guy, man, he's really got it together. That gal, such a godly person. That gal and that guy, they're fighting their, their, their passions. They're fighting their mortal bodies. They're fighting all the reasons that their impulses are telling them, don't do this. Well, that's life. They've been, God's given them life to their mortal bodies because the Spirit of God is within them working, and they're fighting the good fight of faith. One day, none of us will have to fight because our bodies won't be, you know, not cooperating anymore. They'll be cooperating. They'll love to walk in, in, in the path of righteousness. But this passage, you need to read it as a whole, and that is that he's just said you can't just have a mind that's set on the flesh in verse 7. It's not going to submit to the law of God. But guess what? You can please the Lord, and you can start to see increasing victory over sin. And that's the transition there in that paragraph in verses 9 through 11. And then he gets into this great future glory that's coming after verse 18. And it all crescendos with this wonderful truth that we're going to have new mortal bodies. They're not going to be mortal. They're going to be immortal bodies, and that's coming. Hmm. So in this particular, I mean, this is probably true of many more verses, but the co the full context of reading that that broader context, like you're saying, 
would help understand, help us understand the, the, what this verse is saying. Absolutely. If you were dealing with someone who had some terrible sin, they become a Christian, you'd say, hey, God can get you through this. You're going to start to see victory over this. may not be complete in this life, but that's what we mean when we say he's going to give life to your mortal bodies. Why? Because the Spirit of God's going to dwell in you. You're a new Christian now, and it's going to. You, there are going to be changes in your life. You, you, the, you're a new creation, to quote 2 Corinthians 5, right? The old things are going to start to pass away. Behold, all things are new. There's going to be a new season of life, and it's empowered by the indwelling Spirit. It won't be perfect, right? But mm-hmm. it's going to be better. Mm-hmm until it will be perfect, and one day it will. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Joan, for that question. Our last question for this hour's mailbag is from Jeannie in Ohio. She listens to WTGN. Matthew 27, verses 6 through 10, the chief priest takes the silver that Judas brought back um, after betraying Jesus and bought a potter's field with it. The Old Testament scripture quoted here is said to come from Jeremiah, and my footnotes give Jeremiah 32, 6 through 9, and also Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. The quote is almost word for word from Zechariah, so why does Matthew say that it comes from Jeremiah? Mm, That's such a great question. Here's the key to that, and let me give you another passage that may get you at least in the neighborhood. Luke chapter 24, Jesus is resurrected, and he says, when I was with you, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And you think, wow, uh, just the Psalms? No, the Psalms was the first book in the rest of what we call in the Old Testament canon, the writings. So he's talking about divisions of the Old Testament. The Law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books. The Prophets, right, that was the next section. And then there was the writings. And it was called the Psalms because that was the first book in that category. Well, when it says spoken of by Jeremiah, right, this was the first book in the prophetic books, right? When, when Jesus said Moses and the prophets, well, the first one that was written or the first one that was collected there and, and you would read in the scrolls of the prophets was Jeremiah. So he's referring to that whole section. The exact quote, as you say, is in Zechariah 11, right? And you can find some nuances that might relate to this in Jeremiah, but the real statement comes from Zechariah, which happens to be in that section of the Bible. We say New Testament, right? We're referring to all those books. It could be a quote from Romans, could be a quote from from 1 John. So it's true that you could use the word Psalms to talk about any of the books in the poetic books or the rest of the Old Testament, or you could use the word Jeremiah to, to reference the entire rest of the prophets, the section of the prophets. And, and if, all you have to do is go online and look at the breakdown of the sections of the Hebrew Bible, which is, of course, what they were all referring to. It was in Greek at that time called the Septuagint, but it was the Bible of the New Testament was the Old Testament text. And you would refer to the section of the prophets either with the words the prophets or you could say Jeremiah, just like he says Psalms in Luke 24. Was, was that too technical? <laughs> Did we, we no. follow that? Yeah. No, that's very helpful. How, how do you know then if it's, maybe the footnotes are what tell you this, but how do you know if it's referring to Jeremiah, like in this passage, how would I know it's Jeremiah or if it's referring to this is the prophets? Yeah. If I said in the New Testament, it says, God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, how would you know where that is? Well, you'd know because you're familiar with Romans chapter 8. Right. And, and that's the point. These people were well-versed in the scriptures, right? They knew their Bibles. Right. And so when you referred to a section and then you quoted something in the, in the text, like it's not lawful, you know, or whatever the quote was there about the 30 pieces of silver, uh, you would say, well, they know it because 
they know it, right? They, they know the scriptures. They read it. They memorize large sections of it as children growing up in a Jewish household. And so, yeah, that, that's how they would know. They would okay. know because it's a sectional heading, and you quote a passage, they'd go like, oh, yeah, I know that. Okay, so similar to how today we may say, as Paul wrote to the yeah. Thessalonians, or even just as Paul wrote, sure. that we know that, okay, this refers to the Pauline epistles, to these specific letters that he wrote, and so it narrows it down to that totally. section, and you could then way to put quote it. it. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was very helpful. <laughs> Thank you, Jeannie, for that question. If you have a mailbag question you want to submit, you can do that on our website. There's an Ask Michael a Question uh, place right there on the main page at openlineradio.org, or you can email us at any time you have that Bible question at openline at moody.edu. Terrific. Well, we have more questions coming up that are lined up on our board, and we're going to try to get to those. My name is Dr. Mike Fabares. You're listening to Open Line. That's with Dr. Michael Rydelnik on Moody Radio, and we're so glad to get back to your live questions. We've got a whole board here. We'll get to as many as we can right after this short break. Would you like to explore the depth of Psalms and go beyond the familiar verses in Proverbs? Well, the Moody Bible Commentary should be the first place we turn for biblical insight. We've excerpted the Moody Bible Commentary on the Psalms and Proverbs to help you better understand God's Word and apply the worship of Psalms and the wisdom of Proverbs to our everyday lives. Give a gift today and request your copy of the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs. Call 888-644-7122 or visit openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabar is sitting in today for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and we're going to go back to your calls after I try to keep my promise here, which I almost forgot about, the reference to Benjamin and Judges 21. And this is a lengthy section, actually starts a couple chapters earlier with the sin that took place in Gibeah, which is in Benjamin, that there was this very horrible scene, as we saw even back in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. You might remember that whole story of rape that took place there. Well, this it starts the same way a couple chapters earlier, but then there is that promise that we need to get Benjamin uh, out from under the problem of what had happened here and, and the decimation of them not having wives and all that took place. So yes, there was a connection to a homosexual act a few chapters earlier, but the judgment here was coming upon them because of a variety of of, of circumstances, but God was in this situation through the fellow tribes member uh, being able to say, listen, we need to make sure that Benjamin has uh, wives to propagate their line. And though Benjamin was small and subsumed within Judah as a territory, uh, there, is that, um, there is that grace of God in restoring a sinful uh, tribe. And yet the book of Judges, just remember this, when you're going into the 30, 330 plus years of the history of Judges, it is the worst, one of the worst possible times in Israel's history. So you're going to find stuff on every other page in the book of Judges that you're going to say, this is horrific stuff. This is horrible information. And so it is. Uh, and in this particular case, you see God's grace, even in the worst of sins, 
through Gibeah and, and Benjamin in this passage. And that's um, a lot to look at, but you can just start reading there in chapters 18, 19, 20, 21 of Judges and try and catch up on some of those horrific things. Your jaw may drop, but that's what's going on in that book. A lot of sin, and it reminds us that there was no king in Israel, and that didn't just mean a monarch on a throne, but the Lord was not their king. They were not looking to him, and everyone did what whatever was right in their own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges, and it's a bad theme. And let's pray that we as a church never get that said about us. Let's go to Stanley now in St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, Florida. Listening to WKES, you're on the air. How can I help? Yes, hi, brother uh, Mike. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Uh, I grew up in India, and I I remember my mother used to cover her uh, head uh, whenever she went into the assembly. Uh, so also, uh, you know, other women, that, uh, you know, in the uh, in the church. Uh, so uh, I'm in the United States now. I'm not seeing that practice done. Uh, I, I know Paul, uh, you know, cites uh, an example from creation. I think that um, uh, man was, is the head of uh, women and and so forth. Um, my, I'm struggling to understand why would Paul draw. Uh, example from a timeless, uh, you know, of nature, and then apply to the issues in Corinthian church. Sure. Uh, you know, I was told that, you know, we stopped practicing that because it's just a cultural thing. Um, so I just wanted uh, uh, some light from you on that subject. Yeah, well, there's two words there, one in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11 about the traditions, and one there in verse 16 of the same passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, about the customs. So we do know that that's certainly in view. What you have to do is sort out from verses 3 through 12, or verse verse 15, what is uh, the teaching that is rooted in creation, which certainly is on the table in this passage, and what is that tradition or custom that's being referred to. And I do think you've got to bounce back and forth. And the word head is 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 used both in a literal way and a, a metaphorical way. Like Christ is the head of every man. That's not a literal statement, right? That's a statement about the fact that he's the metaphorical authority over every man. And so we have in the passage about men here taking this leadership role in the church. They are the, the authoritative head of the woman in the church. They're not in that position as the leaders administratively in the church. And then you talk about, well, the symbol of authority, the prophesying with head covering or without head covering. So we're bouncing back and forth between the dishonoring of the authoritative leadership and how we express that. And that expression, I do think, falls into the category of verse 2 and verse 16, the custom or the tradition. And that tradition is expressed in different ways in different cultures. And I would say, just like we have today, certain customs that reflect your, your gender, and you say, well, this is an expression of me you know, wearing dresses or high heels as an expression of gender. You have the same thing going on in the ancient world. It just happens to be different. Head coverings in that section of the world, and of course, even into India, very common. And then we have them without 
And that it doesn't mean we're not acting or expressing our gender as we believe that we are different than men as a woman. And that's what's going on there. I would refer you to, and this could go on, pastormike.com. If you just look up my teaching on 1 Corinthians 11 2, I've got a chart there. We work through it and we try to understand that we're not in sin if we don't put a head covering over our head, although we may be disrespectful depending on what part of the world we're, we're in and we should respond accordingly if we're in a different part of the world. I hope that helps. And that's out of time, that music, that's what it means. But uh, we are so grateful you've listened. Thanks to our Open Line team, Trish McMillan, Courtney Young, Lynn, for answering the phones. If you want more information about Open Line, go to openlineradio.org. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, Ministry of Moody Bible Institute.